All right, welcome back, Better Everyday Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Brad Weems. Today's guest is the creator of Flex, an online CRM company for gym owners, the, the former director of sports development for the Grid League, and an expert when it comes to customer experience. Today's guest is Joe Tabalti. How's it going, Joe? Yeah, good, good. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Um, you're one of those guys that I've listened to, uh, you know, through Stu's content. I heard you on uh, Aaron Dodge's podcast a while back, the oh, self-awareness yeah. podcast. Self-awareness podcast, yeah. Yeah, and so, and then met you at the Self-Made Summit. So, listening to your stuff uh, when you're hopping on other people's uh, shows. So, uh, I thought it would be awesome to jam with you one-on-one uh, -on -one a little bit today. So, yeah, let's do it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Cool, man. So, I want to dig a little bit deeper about Joe, and let's just talk about um, childhood up to, to college. Sure. Um, so I guess if we want to start back there, what really defined me in my almost entire upbringing all throughout high school was baseball. That was kind of my main focus. I was a baseball player first and almost everything else. Like I never let my academics slip because my parents wouldn't let me. Um, the rule in my house was that if my grades slipped below an A, that I would no longer be allowed to play baseball. So I had to kind of max out in the classroom and then also on the field. So I think that life of dedication, like into a specific arena, definitely set me up for some success. And I also believe that baseball is probably one of the best sports to prepare you for real life. Um, so that I'd never go back on that. I think that was great. Um, and then as I kind of escalated through high school, um, I started to get a lot more into development and computers. It kind of ran in the family, to be honest. Um, my mom was the computer lady at the school. My dad was working at IBM for 32 years. So like we had computers, like personal computers, it's hard to imagine this now, but like back in the day, most people had a computer in their house. Like mm -hmm. that was the computer. So like, oh, I want to use the computer for this amount of hours. Um, since my dad worked for IBM, he was always getting new parts. So like I had a personal computer. I built my first computer when I was 12. So I had already been kind of messing with that stuff. So I kind of knew that was the direction I wanted to go in, but baseball was the primary focus um, until I got to college. And when I got to college, I went to University of Delaware and I was a comp sci major and a baseball player. And on the first day of class, the comp sci uh, professor that I had said that we were going to need to do like 20 to 25 hours a week in the lab. And the hours that the lab was open was the exact time that I was at baseball. So mm. I raised my hand and I asked him like, hey, like, what do I do in this scenario? Um, and he said, there's no way of getting out of the lab time. So at that point, I had to make a decision. And at that point, baseball was paying for school. So it was unfortunately a decision where I had to let go of the education that I wanted early on mm -hmm. uh, to satisfy the baseball conditions. So I continued to take like classes in that kind of stuff. Um, but I switched my major officially to uh, marketing. Okay. So management and marketing is what I went through. Uh, bounced around a couple of different schools, went up and played on Long Island for a year. And then I ended up down south at Lander University, um, where at that point I had accrued so many like college credits that I had to like drop things out of my major in order to actually graduate on time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a wacky road. Um, but yeah, I finished out my baseball career there, you know, put the cap on that. And I graduated in 2012 um, as a manager a marketing manager and an ex-baseball player and no idea what was next. <laughs> so that well, kind of brings you up to uh, my professional career. So, so where'd you grow up, Joe? Uh, I grew up on Long Island. 
New York. Okay, got you. And then one interesting thing you said, uh, you were talking about uh, baseball and how it prepares you for life. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. Sure. Um, so in my opinion, like the things that we participate in life have obviously lasting effects, especially if we start doing them before the ages of 15, when your neuroplasticity is at its all time peak. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, as sports go, baseball is one of the only sports that really gives you so many different views of you as a person. So it's the only sport that I know of where it's like you become isolated at points, right? Like when you're up to bat, it's you versus nine other guys. And it's all up to you to try to further the team. You're still working for the grand team, but the eyes are on you. You're isolated in that moment, and it's up to you to kind of uh, battle through it. And then on the flip side, you get the very next half of the inning, you're in the field with eight other guys as your teammates trying to get one guy out. And I think that that's a lot of life. I think a lot of people go through life imagining that they're going to have to bear the burden of most of the things that they do, when really it comes down to the people that you surround yourself with and how good you work together as a team. Um, but that's not to ignore the individual component of your success because you do matter in it. So I think that's a great uh, lesson to take from it. The other big one is the failure rate. I just think in life, you know, we look at success and failure constantly and to try to define it is kind of tough because success is defined differently by everybody, but failure is kind of the same. Everyone defines failure as not reaching success, <laughs> but since everyone defines success differently, it's hard to know what failures are good and what failures are bad. And I think what baseball teaches you is that you can fail 70% of the time and still be a Hall of Famer. You'll be one of the best players that ever existed. If just one out of every three times you step up to take a swing, you get a hit. And I think that's very analogous with life. I absolutely love that analogy. Uh, I've never thought about the sport of baseball that way. Yeah. So I, I, grew I up, tend to th overthink about a lot of things. <laughs> so baseball is definitely one of them. I, I grew up playing baseball and also played tennis. So I was on the tennis court at the age of five start playing baseball around six to eight, somewhere in there. So when it comes to high school, I had to pick which sport I was going to go into. And I went into tennis because uh, I felt like uh, I had a better chance of gaining a scholarship in college, which I did with uh, offers. So, but uh, you make me almost regret my decision almost. <laughs> So. Well, I guess tennis in some ways has some of the similarities, right? You can play with somebody else. You can just do it individually. So I think it does have that team component. I think baseball really separates itself from its failure component. Yeah. I think that the, the sooner, I mean, I even heard recently someone say, and they were referring to relationships, but it's like the sooner you get over um, the idea of failure or the thought that this is somehow who you are now, you're defined by your failures. Mm-hmm the better opportunities you're going to have in life. It's just, it's just that simple. It's simple enough to sit back and be like, I can accept rejection really well. So I'm limitless because you just keep going after it. And mm -hmm. I've struggled myself with rejection. Don't get me wrong. Like I am definitely not this guy that's impugned to it. You'll probably know by looking at any of my social media channels and the fact that I post once or twice a year. Um, I'm definitely not an oversharer in a world where oversharing is kind of the thing because I'm a, I am a little afraid of the ridicule. Like I, I know I'm just still battling with some like, ooh, I don't know if I'm ready to hear that kind of negative feedback yet. Yeah, and I remember hearing on a podcast that you did with Stu, you are kind of nervous, like maybe an ex or someone in the past is like, oh, look at Joe, now he's one of these guys. Yeah, right, you, you, it's because like so many people love to silo, right? We, we have a, a natural cognition to like find somebody and immediately try to place them into a group of people that we already know exist 
just to make it easier for our brains to process because we don't want to spend more time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, you see a guy talk, I mean, are you a Gary Vee fan or at least yes. know about him? Yes. So, you know, a lot of times get some, you know, another white guy gets online and starts telling you about being motivated and working hard. And you're like, oh, he's another Gary Vee. And it's like, well, first of all, there's a whole discussion of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think that's very dependent on the person that's mm -hmm. giving the, you know, but also just to be grouped so wildly after a single video just always felt so not right. It's, it's just inaccurate. We don't want to spend time. I think it's one of like the biggest things that we can work on as like a, as a social group, as like a giant social fabric, which is just being a little bit more accepting of taking the time to understand where someone's coming from. So I think that I just wanted to wait until I was at a point in my life where I was a little bit sh more sure about the things I was going to talk about. Mm -hmm. and I think it took me until honestly my early thirties until I felt like I had something to say. Cool. Cool. So you graduate uh, college with a business marketing degree. Mm -hmm. so what's next? So this is like the, I think one of the biggest points of like, I look back in my life and I say, this, this is the kind of things that make you who you are. So I graduated from that school and I think in my head at that point, I was a fifth year senior, like you get college. By the time you're in there for five years, you get it. You know how to play the game of college because um, there are finite rules. And at that point, I felt like I was peaking in life in all of the different areas that I wanted to. I had good steady relationships. I was doing great on the baseball field as a captain of the team. I was a 4.0 GPA, like everything was going right. And I was cool right? Relative to what was going on. It was like, you know, I had people coming over, we were friends, like, and I don't mean to say that, like, I think that everybody kind of strives to have some sort of recognition. And I had it at that moment, I guess, is, the, is what I meant to say. And then you graduate, and all of it just goes away, mm -hmm. period. It's like a clean slate. And now I'm just a guy that lives in the second most impoverished county in America, looking for a job. And I went home for a little bit, I stayed at home for like two months, it didn't really work out, moved back down south, and I was like, I'm just going to go try to figure something out. I love the weather. That's what got me down here. Like just the idea of it being sunny was just, yeah, that was enough for me to move. So I moved back down here and I ended up getting a job at Walgreens as an assistant manager. So I look at it as like, there's this three month gap where I went from like peaking of everything that I was good at to now I'm an assistant manager at Walgreens. And in my head, I'm still that guy that I was in college. Mm -hmm. But everyone around me just looks at the new, like I'm just the new manager. I'm the new guy that they don't want to take orders from. And most of the people that I was talking to were older than me. Unfortunately, I started losing my hair at a young age. So they all thought I was older than them, uh, which played in, into it a little bit. But ultimately, I was just like, oh, man, where am I at in life? And you start to get these really overwhelming negative thoughts about yourself and about like, oh, man, am I going to have to start over? Am I going to have to start from scratch? Until one day, I was just like, I'm going to force positivity into my life. Like, yes, this is not exactly what I want to be doing. But the only way to get out of it is to just start doing something else, right? So like, I can't say that, well, I'm just gonna hope that the world, uh, you know, somehow awards me for how hard I worked in college to get to where I went. No, you just start over. That's kind of life. You have to build your reward system about around doing the actual thing, the process of getting to where you wanna go. And you have a much more fulfilling life than putting the reward on the outcome. So what um, does forcing positivity look like? So in my world, uh, it was, I mean, I was wearing, I'm, this is so stereotypical, right? Like the blue bl button down with the name tag and the khaki pants, like nothing that I wanted to wear. I kind of lost my identity in some ways, mm -hmm. but I decided that at work, I was going to be the force of positive energy that almost annoyed people. Like I would walk in with the biggest smile and you just force it. And for the first few days, you really feel fake. You feel like this is just an act. Someone's going to call me out. 
But what happens is you end up forming a habit. So I would walk in and I would just have this huge smile on my face and the employees would start rolling their eyes because they knew they weren't gonna be able to say something to me that got me down. Mm -hmm. Whatever they wanted to say, do you realize what she did back there today, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh no. So we're gonna have to redo it? Like I would just never let them get to me. So what I became at Walgreens, which was really funny, was the guy that anytime a customer had a complaint, which happens quite a lot, <laughs> um, I would be the name that they called over the announcement to like get there and go talk to them. And you've never seen a more mad person in your life than people whose photos don't turn out well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is back in the days when like not everybody was using their phone for everything and people were still getting a lot of stuff printed. And you get someone who uses a, you know, a piece of crap camera at their kid's birthday party, all the pictures are blurry because they don't know how to use the camera. Mm -hmm. And then they get mad at us because we did something wrong. I'm like, we just printed the pictures that you took, right? Yeah. And you get these people that are irate and come in and yell at you. And, and the thing is, I just sat there building character knowing that she's not yelling at me. She's upset about the fact that these pictures didn't turn out well and whether that in that moment, she's able to reflect and be like, I should have done a better job or take it out on an unassuming employee. That's her prerogative. And now mm -hmm. I have the prerogative to be like, all I can do is give you 20% off. That's literally the best I can do. So mm -hmm. I can either give you that 20% off or you can reject all of these prints and you don't have to pay anything for any of this. And I mean, they don't stop there. It's not like, oh, suddenly they all turn around. Like I had a woman <laughs> tell me once that this was the farthest I was ever gonna make it in life and I should just give up. That's literally what she was telling me in front of my employees. And when she left, I just turned to them and said, damn, she was having a really bad day. And I think that that kind of encompasses the type of leader I became. I was a captain on almost every single team that I was on in baseball, but I was never the hoorah guy. I was never stand up in front of everyone and, hey, listen to me, this is what we're gonna do. I just mm -hmm. did it. I just exemplified what I thought would be the best person to have on this team or this you know, job or whatever it was and hope that other people started falling in line. And a lot of times it works. There'll always be people that are outliers, but a lot of times people are looking for the person who's also willing to do the work like them. So when an employee would turn to me that was working part-time, that just had a tough day, maybe their boyfriend broke up with them, which should have absolutely no impact on their work at all, but it does, because mm -hmm. we're human and you can't just push that stuff out of your head. So I would go and be like, you know what, go take a 20 and I'll do this restocking. And right. I think that those type of relationships you recognize, it's, it's all about the relationships we foster in our life. So that was a huge pivot point for me. Okay. Um, so it was also at that time that I started to get back into development. Okay. So you created a digital beer menu, correct? Yeah. So, um, I knew I wanted to get out of Walgreens. <laughs> I just didn't know how. So I got a job at a local pizza place that was like a, a craft bar up and coming. Mm -hmm. So back in 2012, 2013, craft beer was like starting to become a big thing, but like they didn't, it wasn't mainstream yet. Like they didn't have it at Chili's. Like you couldn't go to Outback and order a craft beer. You're still getting, you know, Bud Light, Michelob, whatever. Right. Um, but this tiny pizza place in Greenwood, South Carolina was installing 24 taps to have all kinds of craft beer. And um, I got a job there just to kind of meet some more people in the town and have some extra money. So as I was working there, um, the owner of the establishment came to me and said he was having some issues with their menus. And I'm like, what's going on? He goes, well, the problem is we don't have like endless supply of these kegs. Like we get them one or two at a time. So I put it up on the menu. I print these all out for the tables. And by the time people actually get there to order it, it's been kicked. It's, it's out. Right. And it just makes a terrible customer experience. And that's what set in my head. As soon as he said that, I was like, what a terrible experience to come to a bar because you want to try something and then you can't. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, 
I think I could fix that for you. And at that time, this is where like, I'm willing to take risk at opportunity. Like I didn't know if I could actually fix it for him, but in my head, I'm like, I know there is a way to fix it for him. And maybe if I just spent the time to learn that, I'd become better at what I wanna do. So I'm like, hey, I think I could fix this for you. I understood at that point, I used Visual Basis, Basic with an access database. So it ran locally. This is not something that could even run online. Mm -hmm. um, and I went home in the beginning of that December and I remember I was dating a girl and I said, hey, I'm gonna build an application for the bar I work at and just see what happens. And I just dove into tutorials and like testing stuff out. Um, and at the end of the month, I had built basically a bar inventory system that allowed the person that was bartending to just click a few buttons on the screen and print out a templated menu with the most up-to-date menus for all of the tables. And I remember the day that I brought it in to show it. I wore a suit. It was 95 degrees in Greenwich. I wore a nice suit. I walked in and I sold it to him for $150. Um, now how much time did was, you put into this? Oh, a whole, at least a month, right? A month wow. of like figuring this stuff out. But at that point, it, it was just the idea that I'd sold something that like, it lit me on fire. It mm -hmm. wasn't this like, oh my God, I'm now $150 richer. It was like, I just made something that's going to make this person's life easier. And it's also going to make his consumer's lives easier. Like, and it's what I say is my first win, win, win. And it's the win, win, wins that I've been trying to go after my entire career, which is like, how do I win for me personally, for the person I'm giving this to, and for the people that they're then going to use this software for. Um, he ended up using that piece of software for four years. Wow. And I think what was so cool about it is that we stayed in touch. And even after I ended up getting my next job, which was with a special education software company, um, we stayed in touch and I tried to build this thing online and I got pretty far with it. Um, but I ended up getting a little bit of imposter syndrome when he wanted it to integrate with the point of sale. I had reached this level where I had mostly taught myself online. Like I was teaching myself through Google and YouTube. Um, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then that imposter syndrome sets in. Like, I don't even know how to accomplish this problem. And I just kind of let it slip. And even looking back at it now, I have very few like major regrets in my life. But I think that that app was two years before untapped ever hit the scene. And mm -hmm. it was better in ways already. Like I was the first person to have, <laughs> he had bar menus where you scan a QR code and it purchases it and tells the bar to start. Like it was just, it was so right, but I got so nervous that I let it go. Yeah. Um, so I don't regret it overall. I, I think I don't regret the experience because it let me know like, hey, next time you have an idea, take it as far as you can. Don't right. just stop because you think you can't. So uh, I've heard you say before that you're, you uh, love helping improve customer experience. So do you think that this forced positivity you had at Walgreens like led to you having this passion for customer experience or where did this come from? I think it probably came from, so if I dial back a little bit, I was a bit of a lost generation. My parents had me really late. Um, you know, my dad says I'm an accident. My mom said I was a blessing, whatever it is. But because of that, in my um, immediate family, I was, you know, 10 years younger than my siblings. Mm -hmm. And I was eight to 10 years older than my cousin's kids. So I fell into this lost generation of like, when we get together as a family, you have a choice. Like, you want to sit at the kid's table or you want to sit with the adults and not talk. And it's like, I was too old for the kid. I don't want to be nine sitting with a bunch of six-year-olds and two-year-olds and whatever. Um, <clears throat> so I would go sit at the adults table and I became obsessed with trying to figure out how to be a part of the conversation, which is super tough. When you're 10 and 11, you have very little to talk about with 21 plus year olds. Right. So I just observed. 
And I think that's when I first noticed my pattern of behavior is to like, anytime I'm in a new environment, I spend an abnormal amount of time observing before I'm ready to participate. Um, I think that sometimes people think that because I speak clearly that I'm great in social situations and it's just not totally true. Like I, I feel comfortable in certain situations like great like this, this is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You inject me into a place where I'm not really sure what my role is or who my audience is and I, I, I sort of clam up. So I think that from a very early age, I was very cognizant of like wanting to know why I was the way I was and why other people were the way they were. And then as I learned more about marketing in college, you start to understand that like things that are obvious after the fact are not always obvious in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and if I was able to bridge that time gap of like, now I'm able to recognize it before other people do, that creates opportunity. So I've always kind of navigated towards philosophy and psychology and human behavior because I feel like once you understand how that works, there's no profession that doesn't benefit from that. There's actually no part of life that doesn't benefit from understanding why we are the way we are. So 100%. I feel like it's helped me in a lot of different ways. Cool. All right, let's uh, continue with your story. So you start working for this specialized education company and you're doing software work for them. So let's yeah. talk a little bit more about that. So I got that job because I actually applied in Columbia, South Carolina to a bigger development firm. And the stories there is kind of funny because I definitely was punching up. Like I was trying to enter a realm that I was like, man, I'm gonna try to put my professional career in this development space, even though I'm not classically trained in it. I don't have like a traditional education in it. I'm mostly Google and YouTube. Um, <clears throat> but I was like, ah, let's just give it a try. And the first place that I applied to brought me in for an interview that was two and a half hours long. And <clears throat> I sat there at the table. They asked me a whole bunch of questions about my past. And then they said, okay, now we're gonna go to the part of the interview where um, we're gonna have you do some work. And you found us through a job board, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, let's pretend that we wanted you to build us a job board. So we're gonna go through the requirements gathering. You're gonna get from us what you need. You're gonna use your own expertise of just having done it. And I want you to literally go up to the whiteboard and start writing in code how you would make this app. I got so nervous because I'm like, I, so, and this is where you realize that like honesty pierces the veil more than anything else. Like if you, I just looked them right in the eyes and I said, I'm not gonna be able to write a, a line of code today that's in this line. And they looked at me like, what do you mean? And I told them the truth. I was like, I don't do this for a living. I've been doing this for six months and I've been mostly self-taught. There's no doubt in my mind that I understand the structure of what this app would look like, but I can't write the actual, like the syntax that would run, that would compile. Mm -hmm. And he said, no problem, write it in pseudocode. And pseudocode just means write it out in words, right? Like write it out what this statement would do. Mm -hmm. So after struggling through that for 30 to 40 minutes, I left feeling really like depleted. Like, oh man, like I definitely, that was not for me. And a woman named Julie, I'll never forget her. She came into the elevator with me and um, she was like, so how'd it go in there? I was like, oh, I think I bombed. And she said, I don't know. Most of the time they spit people out in eight to 10 minutes. Wow. And I was been there for two and a half hours. So then I was like, oh, wow. And, and it was in that moment I remember being like, wow, life is totally about perception. Like I would have walked out of there and had up with this one woman who for no reason decided to engage with me on an elevator and talk to me about my interview. I would have left there thinking I was probably not meant to have a career in Who knows what would have happened next? And that's why I think when people try to go back and rewrite their own history, like become revisionists, like, well, if I would have just done this differently, you have no idea. We're talking about one woman who probably doesn't even remember who I am saying one thing to me on an elevator. And it literally changed the, the career path, right? I was like, oh man, maybe I do have what it takes. 
long story short, they ended up kind of stringing me along a little bit. And then they said I made it to their last round of application pool. But the guy that they I was up against just had more applied experience, which I was like, that makes sense. I understand. But they said, we also have this partner who we develop software for, and they're a bit of a reseller. They have a role for you and they love to talk. And I got on the phone with them. I talked to a couple of people on the team and by Tuesday they had hired me. Um, and that role was in special education software where I kind of, I was in the gap between developers and the people selling and buying the software. Um, so I did some of my own custom development, but I very quickly realized that one of my actual talents is communication and mm -hmm. the ability to go and talk to people and gather requirements and then give them to developers in a way that they understand and then take back from the developers that language that only they understand and somehow put it into more layman's terms for the people in the front end. So um, I kind of quickly scaled up there, even though it probably presented some of the biggest challenges in my life because I was 24 at the time. And I was mostly, I think that the next closest person to age of me was like 30 and then 42, like huge age jumps. Mm -hmm. And everybody that I ended up managing as I kind of progressed in that career was older than me. So I got a lot of experience of like, what it's like to be the 25 year old who's running a team of 45 year olds who have been doing what you've been doing for 20 years and you can't tell them that you know better because you don't, mm -hmm. they actually do know better. And it's super humbling, <laughs> you know? What's crazy is you, you're, you're 11 and you're sitting at a table with 21 year olds. You graduate college and you work at Walgreens and you're managing older people. And then once again, here you are again, managing older people. It, so. it, it, yeah, I never even thought about it like that, <laughs> but yeah, that's true. Um, the one thing we've not discussed yet and obviously uh, I'm a gym owner and um, is, your, is your fitness journey. So I was gonna like, say, by now people are probably wondering why I'm on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're 30 minutes in, we haven't even mentioned fitness yet. <laughs> um, so, so are you working out while all this is going on in life? Yeah, so back then, um, yes. I mean, I think I took eight months off from the end of college mm -hmm. where I was just like, I was burnt out in a lot of ways. I mean, I had started working out. I had a, a personal trainer when I was 15, like baseball specific, because like the goal then was to get drafted. That was like yeah. all of the focus on it. I Baseball <laughs> consumed my life. So I always had a pretty everyday fitness thing. Like I, I, I very rarely went days without some sort of physical activity. I took eight months off right after college and I never forget it. I put my shirt on of one of my cool college shirts. Like I was like, this is the shirt that looks good. And the only thing that touched the shirt was my stomach instead of my arms and my shoulders. Like I'm, and I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> I need to go back to the gym. So then I got back into the gym, um, only doing things I enjoyed doing. I had never been able to bench press heavy because in college for baseball, you just weren't allowed to because mm -hmm. um, it impacts your swing. So I was like, forget legs. I've done legs my whole life. It was always about legs and core. And even throughout college, I just want to do arms and chest and just get as big as I can just doing that. And so that was my regimen at that point. Like I was going to golds. I was just trying to get, see how big I could get um, until a buddy of mine. And we had done some CrossFit in college. And I actually think that that tainted my experience with CrossFit because it was mm -hmm. used as a way to eliminate guys from the team. Like and now looking back on it, in retrospect, it was very obvious to me that they were just trying to put us through paces to try to get people to quit because a new coach had come in and he wanted to kind of revamp the program. So we had only done the crappy parts of CrossFit. Like we did no big Olympic lifting. We did no heavy weights. We never put more than 95 pounds on the bar. And it was just all, we were outside at 6 a.m. doing handstand pushups and gravel. Like that's what it was like. Sure. So I never wanted to get back there. Yep. Um, 
And then I had a buddy of mine say like, hey, you should try CrossFit again. Like it's actually way different than we did it in college. I've been doing it for two years, you'd love it. And at that point I was like, you know what? I've been doing this Gold's Gym thing for a while now. Let me go do this, this other thing. And I think that night they were bench pressing. And I was like, you know what? Fine, I'll do it because it's bench press. Um, I said, I'll commit myself to a month and just see what happens. And I was prepared to lose weight because that's what happened to me last time. I was prepared to like that. And I ended up gaining 12 pounds. Wow. And I was bigger than ever. And then it just kept growing from there. I just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I was like, I just want to see how far this can go. Um, so that's what really got me back into like working out as a staple in my life, not just being something that was like, okay, I know I have to do this, but I'm not really looking forward to it. CrossFit kind of brought back that spirit of like, ooh, there's some competition here. I can be better at it. And I was a catcher. Mm-hmm. So my ankle mobility, my overhead mobility, like everything that people struggled with normally and had to like work for sometimes even years on to get good at CrossFit, mm-hmm. I was like, I was already there. I was already squatting. I could sit in the bottom of a squat for 30, 40 minutes. Like I had done it my whole life. Yeah. So that's what really got me back into like the fitness scene, I think. That's cool. Uh, so was, where was this at? Was this in South Carolina still or is this what's due? Yeah. So this was when, this was like when I started working for the special education companies around that same time. Okay. About a year. Gotcha. So um, the, the one thing I, w- I wanted to talk about is you apparently had this passion for this up and coming grid league. Yeah. So, so what like kind of sparked that? What, it, what made it so interesting mm-hmm. for you to where you eventually set up your own competition, the SAGL? Uh, to get the grid league's attention. Yeah, so the, the story behind that is really one of, it probably is a pretty good encapsulation of what my life is like, which is I start with the seedling of an idea mm-hmm. and then I just don't stop it until it becomes whatever it's going to become. And <clears throat> I was in CrossFit, I was competing at that time and I was winning some competitions, I was doing well, I was on some teams, it was really enjoyable. But the truth is that I knew I would never be a great individual competitor because I just didn't have the engine and I just didn't want to work on it. It sounds terrible, but like, I don't know. I just, I was, I was done being told what to do in fitness my whole life. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. I want to do what I want to do. And I just want to be really good at that. And then grid came out. And first of all, not that it's still, I believe it's one of the most exciting sports to watch. So um, when I saw it and I realized that you could tag in and out and only do the things you were good at, and it was a team based and it was male, female, it was everything that I was looking for. It was like, Mm -hmm. it was the thing to replace what baseball was for so long. And I was like, I want to play. What's it going to take? Now I knew at that time they were just gonna be picking off of the top CrossFitters because that's kind of how they invented the sport. So I was not one of those. And I was like, where are they going to get the next round of players from? Cause like eventually that pool is gonna fill up. It's like, you're gonna pick at that point it was like super controversial, like grid or CrossFit. And I never understood that. Cause I was like, one feeds the other. So I don't know why there has to be like this like dichotomy between them. Like why can't they exist in tandem, but whatever. So I was like, I'm just gonna try to figure out a way to get the next group of people ready for that. Because what I recognized very early on is like, it was all about transitions. At some point, your athleticism can only take you so far. And now Mm -hmm. it's about the little details. Mm -hmm. And knowing the sport is what gave you the advantage. Understanding what was gonna be expected of you in a game was better than just being better at snatching. So it went back to my baseball days. And I was like, oh man, maybe I could do stuff like they used, used to do these showcases. We're like, we'd pay, I mean, good God, thank goodness for my parents. Um, they used to pay like 800 bucks, a thousand bucks for me to go play baseball for a weekend so that scouts could see me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I wonder if we could set up something like that. Like, what if I just went in and I set up something where people could choke it? And suddenly over time, this became an entire league. 
And my dad always joked with me that I called him one day and was like, hey, I want to try this new sport out grid. And then a week later, I was like, hey, I'm starting this league. And he's like, whoa, what happened to the, all the steps in between of like you playing it or you doing all these things? Um, but I think I just saw an opportunity um, for a really cool, at that time, part-time gig that goes along with what I'm doing, aligns me with more people that I want to be around, um, and gives me a chance to flex some of the stuff that I can't do in my everyday career. So, so a couple questions. Who created the grid league? The original one? Mm-hmm. Like the MPGL? Uh, Tony Budding. Okay. So Tony Budding came from CrossFit. He was their teams coordinator. He decided to pitch this to CrossFit as the new way to do teams. Right. And they said no. And he said, fine, I'm leaving, and I'm going to go do this on my own. So did you have a connection with him already? Mm-mm. So at that point, I didn't even know that it was happening. Like, that was the rumblings in CrossFit, and I was mm-hmm. agnostic of that. Like, that was, that was happening on the West Coast, and I was on the East Coast, hadn't even heard about it yet. So you're a pretty good... It was when they good... put out their first piece of advertising, like, two or three months later that I caught on to it. So you're a pretty good local, regional CrossFitter, let's say, correct? Good. I was good enough. <laughs> so what made I was you... in like the top 200 like I was never a regional athlete or anything like that but yeah okay so what provokes you to basically go create a minor league for them and how do you know that you're even going to get their attention so I think I in the beginning I, I wasn't doing it I at the very beginning I wasn't doing it for their attention I to be God's honest truth like I did this in the beginning because I wanted to play it and I knew that there wasn't going to be any quick opportunities for me to play it unless I built something that I could then play in um, what I didn't suspect was that other people were going to be trying to do a very similar thing. Cause like we started putting out stuff for the SAGL before the NPGL even had their first game. So right. like we were that early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I sat down to think about like how we were going to grow this thing, I was like, I saw the opportunity to create software, which got me really excited. And I think that that's what actually ended up getting me recognized was that I put in a bunch of time into like creating this website for a sport that I knew no one knew anything about, but I knew would be reliant on the backs of the athletes because they were the exciting part. Mm-hmm. And what, what we did a little bit differently than some of the other leagues is that we didn't come from a CrossFit background. Um, you know, I, the other guy that started it uh, was a, had a football background and he had played in, um, you know, pretty high level football and I had a baseball background. So I was like, why don't we treat these athletes like traditional sports athletes and not like CrossFit athletes? Because there was that whole controversy even then, like it's CrossFit really a sport was always the big thing back then. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still don't think it is today. Like, I don't think CrossFit's a sport. I think it's a competition. And I think right. that those are two very different things because CrossFit in its entirety is a great methodology. And I think that it would have been the premier methodology for being great at grid. And if they could have just worked that out, but there was such ill will from Tony Budding leaving CrossFit to create this thing and even using the NBC contact mm-hmm. to get our NBC sports deal, that there was animosity that just couldn't be broken down. And that's, I mean, what grid taught me more than everything is how much ego can ruin, how much you can let ego ruin greatness. It's Mm -hmm. just the truth. Um, So at that point, I just wanted to create something that was going to be fun for me to play in. And then I think it was after I created the website and got pure strength, that was a crazy negotiation. I was negotiating with them to try to get this rig because we needed a rig and a ton of equipment. And in a matter of a month, they had reached out to us because basically they said, we looked like the only ones that were taking it seriously. And it's because I had built a website for it and I was mm-hmm. outreaching to people. And at that point, we had already had 700 people in this athlete central that I built that were interested in playing more grid. Yep. So they looked at us as legit, even though it was literally just me and a guy in our part-time. So 
it was when the first hate message came in that I was like, oh, we're on to that. I got a hate message that was like, yeah. you're just building something on the back of athletes. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm one of them. Like, what do you mean? I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it the way that I would want to do it. But I think it hurt people's brains that I was hosting a competition where the prize was a medal. Yeah. When every CrossFit competition would tell you, unless you're giving away $10,000, you're not getting any good athletes. And I was like, wrong, wrong. That's a very narrow minded way of looking at it. What I spent the money on was rather than spending 10 grand on one team winning, I spent the money on getting uniforms created for every team with their names on the back. Yeah. Because names on the back, what I remember looking forward to as being a part of it, like that was it. Like I wear the name on my front, that's what everybody sees, but I'm also an individual. Yeah. And I think that grit, very similar to baseball, has both that team and individual aspect to it. Yes, definitely. So I was telling Joe uh, in our email leading up to the show that we actually had four members of the gym that were on the Tennessee uh, 10 team. Heck yeah. And, you know, we had, none, of the, none of those people had ever uh, made regionals as a CrossFit athlete, but we had our specialists. I mean, our head coach today, still Josh King, could do 20 muscle-ups in a row. You had Chris yeah. Rasnick that could, uh, you know, s- squat clean 340 pounds. And then it- Rasnick could, could farmers carry more than 85% of the individuals in the sport, not just yeah. the guys yeah. or just the girls. And, and she, was cleaning, she was cleaning jerking 240 pounds. Um, yeah. And so um, it, it was a real cool opportunity for, for them to get showcased. And I actually was at this event. Joe and I didn't know each other at the time. But uh, you put on a great show, and the venue that you had there um, had to have been expensive. Like, how did you know that you could cover that cost? So, the cra- I mean, here's what's crazy. I, and th- I've seen this happen a couple of times in my life, which is you get the ball rolling, and then you're surprised at what happens afterwards, right? Like, if you can create this momentum, people get more afraid of missing out on it than they mm-hmm. do about making sure it's valid. So right. I'm not saying that we were invalid. Right. I was going to put on the best competition that I possibly could. But the truth is, and I get, I mean, now it's been long enough. I could talk about it. So when we got that um, thing from pure strength for them to do their stuff, that was a contract. That was a $90,000 equipment trade off for three years of being the premier sponsor, right? Like it's a huge amount of equipment. And, and once we, that fell, the sponsors came out of the woodworks. So I had already gotten, I think close to $25,000 raised um, from people who are sponsoring both that event, which was like kind of our launch event, um, and the upcoming season. So back in the day, in the early CrossFit days, having that regional sign in your gym was just like it put you on the map. And what I thought was real cool that you did a little bit different was the jerseys with the names on the back. But then for every athlete, you basically made a baseball card for them. That's right. And so I remember all of the Tennessee 10 athletes, that, that was their Facebook profile picture. And, and, and I hate to say it, but like, that was actually why I created it. I specifically created that digital card because I was like, I want to own the most important attention that people had right there, which was on their Facebook profiles. Instagram wasn't as big as it is now. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. gaining traction then, but Facebook was still the Mm go-to. And I knew that if I could get the people that other people looked up to, which were these professional athletes and the people that they looked up to in their gym were promoting this new thing that that would eventually elevate the brand enough to look at us as some sort of premier league. Yep. So I think it's, again, it, I like to go back to, you know, marketing, marketing is how to then deliver this message. Like people get these confused all the time, but you have to know the message. You have to understand right. these paths that people are going to go validate what you're doing. 
And I knew that the validation was not going to come from us. We could sit there all day and tell them this is going to be the best and our league is going to be better. But the truth is if the athletes were excited about it, that meant way more. Mm -hmm. So I remember spending, oh, it was an ungodly amount of hours going through Facebook pictures of every single athlete. We had over a hundred athletes and every single one of them just diving through their feeds, trying to find like the perfect image of them that would capture the essence of what they would want to show someone else about them. That yeah. maybe they didn't even have the courage to put up about themselves. Like I even remember like Maddie and them were not big on social. Like they would no. put stuff up at the gym, but they personally were not trying to promote themselves, right. but they were doing incredible feats. Yeah. So I'm like giving them the opportunity to not have to be like, hey, look at me, look at me. But like someone else is pointing to them and being like, hey, look, this guy's pointing to me. Like, yeah. I think that, that that was what really indoctrinated a community of people who are like, oh, wow, this is like, we're helping each other out here. Right. Um, and I still think that today that that was probably the best move I made in that whole league. <laughs> so it was a super efficient event, really well ran, uh, wildly entertaining. So how many grid um, people of the grid group were there watching? So what happened was we had gained enough traction and attention that the pros actually reached out to me okay. um, about three weeks before the event, I think, or about a month before the event and said, hey, listen, we love what you're doing. They actually saw when I originally launched. And so they had been following along. I mean, again, grid wasn't a huge thing. So mm -hmm. having an amateur league spring up before your first match is even done was probably, I mean, I, I've started a company now. If someone started talking about a product that I just came out with, I'd be like, oh, wow. Like, I, I do care about that. Yep. So they kept tabs and then when they saw us kind of grow, we got the pure strength um, thing, which was also a little bit controversial because they were like, like there were some things that were like, they wanted to make sure that we were doing it right. So they couldn't really tell mm -hmm. us what to do, but they were paying attention. Right. And then they said, Hey, we have this proprietary scoring system that was built out and we'd love to offer it to you to run your match. So we're going to come in. So they actually flew out. That was all planned. Like they flew right. out they, almost their entire team. There was like seven or eight people there. And they stayed at a local hotel to both observe and help us run the scoring system. And that's when I facilitated the connections with all the people that worked there. Because right before the season started, I guess this is the part that I left out, is that me and my buddy sat down. We're like, what do we want out of this? Like, we knew this wasn't going to be ever our full-time gig. Like, we wanted this to be a part-time thing. But, like, what would be the ultimate goal? And he had decided that his ultimate goal was to end up getting a job or something like that with one of the sponsors of the event. Mm -hmm. um, and my goal was to work for the pros because I was like, that would be such a cool evolution to work in like a real startup because I knew that they had good funding. Um, and then, you know, in a matter of four or five months, we both had exactly what we wanted. At. We both had it before the first season even started. He got a job offer and I got a job offer. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like, do we still go on with it? Right? Like we have to go mm -hmm. on. We already made these obligations. So, um, but that's what ended up happening with like actually creating those relationships. So you were working full time and did all this as a side hustle? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So and how long I was you... also in the beginning building my bar app. So I would okay. literally like wake up at probably about, and I'm not an early riser, but I was because I was so motivated. Mm -hmm. So like I would get up at 530. I would work from 530 to 830 on the bar app. I would work from 830 to four for my job. I would work out from four to six. And then from six to midnight, I was doing all of this stuff. Wow. So how long after the, uh, the event did you get the job offer to work uh, with Grid? I think I officially signed two months after. Okay. So they were impressed. Yeah, I think uh, the event was in November, if I'm remembering correctly. And then I started working with them in January. There's a bit of back and forth mm -hmm. because I was like, hey, I need to figure out what I'm doing with my current job and all this kind of stuff and figuring out a salary. And I was a remote worker. So I was going to be the only one that was like full time, but not in California. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, 
So probably about a couple months. So one of the things we failed to mention was for someone that doesn't know what this grid league is that Joe's talking about, can you just describe like what a format and race would look like uh, to an individual? Sure. Yeah. I mean, grid was basically um, co-ed teams going head to head in 12 races that allowed them to showcase different skill sets. Um, is it 11 or 12? God, it's been so long. It might be 11. I have to go back. I think 11 would have made um, sense that way they, they couldn't tie. Yeah, I think, I think it might be 11. Um, anyway, shows you what I know. Um, <laughs> but at that point, so it was about them tagging in and out and basically competing in what was a relay race with mm -hmm. different obstacles, uh, feats of strength, endurance, whatever it was, um, and working together as a team to beat the other team and overall win more races than they did. Yeah. So we actually had, like yourself, you weren't the only one that went to the grid league. We had our head coach, Josh King, and then Matty Rasnick got um, yeah. drafted by the DC Brawlers. So yep. um, we had 13 people drafted, I think, in our first season. Wow. Uh, so out, of that, out of that group from the SEGO, Joe? Yeah. Okay, so 13 of 110, you'd call it, got drafted? And some of the 110 were already professionals. And that was kind of the coolest thing that I feel okay. like. I remember calling, and I won't say who, but I, I called one of the athletes, and they were already a bit on the ego side of it. Like, why would I come do your amateur competition? I'm already a pro. Mm -hmm. And what I said to them <laughs> was, listen, if I turned to you and I said, I'm the best JoJo player in the world, you wouldn't say, wow, that's awesome. You would say, what's JoJo? Because the truth is, you're not the greatest in the world until there's a bunch of people worse than you at it. Mm -hmm. And right now, there's just a bunch of CrossFitters and then grid athletes. So why don't you come to an amateur competition and show them just how much better you are than mm. everybody else that's an amateur? Now you get to create the clout that you are then already assuming you have because you don't. Because the truth is, if you came out and said, I was the best grid player in the world, most people would just say, what's grid? And that was also the sentiment that I brought with me to when I worked for the professionals. I was like, you guys are doing great and you're very focused on the end game. But the truth is like you skip the beginning where you have to tell everybody what the sport is and get them excited about something that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Then we can start building the athletes. Then we can start paying salaries. Then we can start getting sponsors because right now there's no anchor for people to understand what we're even trying to accomplish here. Right. So was that the demise of the grid league? So honestly, I don't think you could put your finger on one, one point of it. I mean, it was definitely an upper management thing in the beginning, right? Like they cycled through two C they, well, Tony Budding was out before I even got there. He had already been cast off the Island before I had even started full time. Okay. Um, and they had burned through an incredible, I'm talking millions of dollars in 10 months. And when you realize that it was like, no one sat down to really think through the business model of this. I think they were just so excited about the opportunity to create this new media product mm -hmm. that that's where all their focus was. And I think it became very clear when the first match went live and they realized that they had not sold any advertising. And this is like the big untold story of Grid, but the truth is that we had a network deal that relied on us selling advertising. That was the deal. The deal was we got spots on NBC Sports Mm -hmm. And they took 50% of the advertising to cover their costs. And we were given the other 50% to try to sell. And no one sold it. No one even thought about where the revenue was going to be coming from. This was a very much like a build it and they will come philosophy. Mm -hmm. And while I, again, was observant for the first 10 months that I was there, I very rarely spoke up in meetings. Like I just kept to myself and like learned the organ. And I'm like, man, this is just, it's, it's being run from the middle out rather than starting in the beginning. And it wasn't until we got the last two investors 
to go all in and try to create something that we were on the right track. And then at that point, though, it was just hard to raise enough money for the season. So instead of working on the business model, they were worried about the best athletes they could get in. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think there were some things that could have been done differently, right? I can, again, I can't, I can't go back on what I said earlier, which is like, I'm not going to create this retrospect where everything works out. Um, but there were definitely a couple of things that I think could have been done differently. Um, I think one of the major contributing factors is that the original investors were the coaches of the teams. Mm -hmm. And now you have something that's got stake in it because there's money on the line to win for your athletes and for your team and for the promotion of it and for your sponsors. But they're also investors in the league. So there was this constant back and forth of like, who's really doing the right thing, right? Like, yes, you guys should be looking out for the athletes, but understand that if the whole sport goes down, they get nothing. Right. So there has to be some semblance. And I tried to insert myself in there towards the end of like, hey, I'll be the liaison. This is what I'm good at. Let me do the communications. You guys say what you want. Let me, let me try to get in the middle of it. But a lot of the relationships had already been kind of torn apart. Um, yeah, and I think it just it made it tough to get everybody on the same page. So what happens next in your life story after you and Gridley go through a divorce? So towards the end, um, you know, as, as uh, you know, because it was such a seasonal thing and most of the time was spent in like the three weeks of the actual season, um, there was a lot of time for thinking about what was next. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was like, all right, I could go get another job, but now I've been exposed to the inner workings of some much bigger organizations. Like I got to have really cool meetings. And I think that that's why it's so important. I mean, I, I understand that there's this huge rush with kids now. To, I mean, I call them kids like 20, 21, 22, start your own company, do that. Yeah. Okay. You can. But I also think that there's a lot to be said about going to work for somebody else and getting the opportunity to be in small organizations that let you touch a lot of different fields. And if you just look at the, I guess the two, two and a half years that I spent with grid, I had done crazy things that there's no way I would have gotten the opportunity to do if I just wanted to work for Bank of America for four years. I definitely would have gotten paid more, maybe accelerated now in my career. But back then it was like, I don't know, I got to be pulled off of a website and I had to go shoot a commercial for NBC. And I had to learn all about that and how to edit and how to shoot film. And then the next day I'm learning how to like source equipment and how to ship it and how to create stickers and media product and all this different stuff at scale. And it's that scale that you don't get to do if you're only working for yourself right from the get, because you start from the middle, like you start from where you are and try to build versus mm -hmm. this thing. I mean, I think the original investment was about 25 million. So wow. we were already an international product by the time I got on. So I was working on Facebook ads at a global scale. I was trying to, in, like, I was running a, an international competition with 16 grid teams coming in from like Bulgaria, like crazy places. Um, and that is when I started to get the momentum shift because, because of the way the organization was structured, I ended up dealing with a lot of the problems. I like, I, yes, other people had to deal with them at a, at a strategic level, but I was the one actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that I was able to do it, I was like, well, then why would I do it for somebody else? I'll just build my own company because then when these really hard times come and they will, and they did, I'll know I can get through it because I've right. just proven it for somebody else. And that's what really gave me the motivation to start my own company. So, so you developed all these skills through your time at the Grid League. So why start Flex, which is a CRM for gym owners and for mm -hmm. listeners that don't know what a CRM is? Can you explain that? Sure. So, and, and just to be clear, Flex actually started as a website creator. Okay. Um, and I think that's an important point because the CRM was an evolution of the product. 
Okay. And I started Flex because of much more practical reasons. And maybe that's not exciting. Maybe somebody wants to hear the story of like, oh, well, I knew that there was, I didn't know. I knew that my network was in fitness and that I knew a lot of gym owners. And I also knew that they had really crappy websites, a ton of them, really bad. But I could never figure out a model wherein they didn't just have to pay me some upfront cost because that's the normal way. It's like, oh, pay me two, three, four, five thousand dollars and I give you this site. And then from then on, I am not incentivized to ever update it for you because then you're going to be paying me forty dollars and sixty dollars. And that's just not a sustainable life. And I didn't want my life to be contract to contract. I was obsessed with the idea of making money while I slept. Right. Like I want to start something that just keeps going. And every once in a while, I just got to feed it. Right. But you don't start there. You start with something that's not scalable. And that's what I did. I took a platform and I created as much as I could to try to basically take what people were already doing WordPress sites and strip out all of the admin, all of the stuff that they didn't need to know. And just, so I taught myself a new platform, uh, Rails, and that's what I built the original thing on. And then I had a network of people. So I managed to connect with OPEX and worked out a contract with them to help their licensees. And that's what started Flex. Like, Unfortunately, it's not much sexier than that. Like I saw an opportunity, I leveraged the network that I had and the skill set that I had. And I think that if that's where you start following your efforts rather than your passions, you're probably off to a better start. And so this um, was, uh, was this January 1, 2018 that you started Flex? It was, I technically started in about June of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it didn't get open to the public until 2018. I was just working with OPEX at that point. Okay, so, so twenty eighteen was when I opened. Started taking on people to gym jump. owners uh, in twenty twenty yeah. or twenty eighteen. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So um, speaking about twenty twenty, you did something really cool for for gym owners last year. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so to take the evolution up, I started as a website thing, and then I was noticing that a lot of people were using other applications to take care of their basic customer communication. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny because at this time I had never even used a CRM at that point. I didn't even know what a CRM was. So really what I ended up doing was just finding out what the people needed. That was my skill set. I just talked to them. I picked up the phone and I talked to every single customer I had. And I said, what are you doing every day? Like, what's your pain points? What could this do that would make it happier? So rather than try to build this entire thing and be like, isn't this great? Use it all. I just went very iteratively and I was like, oh, you need a way to see the people that come in from your website and be able to email them. Okay. And I built just that feature onto the platform. And one by one, I started offloading the features from these crazy platforms that were just way overkill for what they were trying to accomplish into this more basic package. Um, and that's what started to really grow my membership. And we were doing great up into 2020. I think I started paying, I didn't pay myself for two years. Okay. Um, when I started the company. So I had just started paying myself about eight months after, uh, or about eight months into the pandemic hitting. Now, why is that? Because uh, your profit margins should be really solid being a tech company. Yeah, so it's because all of it went back into the product initially. So okay. that needed to be fully self-sustaining. Um, and then for me, I was always like, I'm just going to dump more money into learning and things like, how do I just take this exact money? Cause I don't need the profit now. And to be honest with you, uh, my brother set a kind of a cool path for me. He was also a software developer, um, de very different life than I have. Um, but he ended up selling a software company when he was 35 and retired. And so there was a lot of things that I looked up to him and was like, okay, how can I emulate what he did early on, which is 
not get overblown with having a lifestyle that's above your means. And when you have such a huge margin, like you said, for software, it's tempting, right? To just like start getting nicer places and buying nicer cars and do it. And the truth is that then you create this burn rate. And for people that are listening, that don't know like burn rate is just how much money you're burning through in a month, let's say. Right. So I was always focused more on burn rate than I was on profit because revenue coming in can change as the pandemic proved, but burn rate is completely controlled by you. What do you want to spend money on? What do you not want to spend money on? Mm -hmm. So in the very early on, I was much more like, Hey, I need to get this uh, development a little bit more aggressive. I'm going to take this $15,000 that I created in the last two to three months and find a developer that can help me upload the so that I can go do this other thing. And it allowed me to live variably, which really came into a huge part when I, when the pandemic hit, because I was at such a low burn that overhead didn't kill me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when the pandemic started within the first five weeks, I had lost 40% of the revenue of my company. Yeah. And a lot of that was due to the gyms going out of business, right? It wasn't like my software was bad. It was just suddenly there was this new thing and my platform, which was a fairly high cost for a lot of people's gyms became the thing that they needed to nix or their gym shut down and there was just no need for it. Yeah. Um, but what they reached out to me about was, Hey, Joe, can you just stand up this page on my website? That's password protected. That allows me to upload videos of the classes so that they can do this at home. And now it almost sounds funny talking about it, right? Because of how much that's happened the last year and mm -hmm. all the conversations about digital fitness. But at this point, only the best were doing it. We're delivering some sort of digital product in a mass way. And when they were telling me, I immediately go to the user experience, right? I go back to that win, 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 where I'm just like, okay, this is a win for me because I could stand something up that you'll keep paying me for, right? Mm -hmm. It's a win for you because you think you're solving what the problem is. But the truth is I hate when small business owners are forced into a position where they have to do something for literal or no return in the future. Right. And to me, what they wanted would have not gapped any further than the pandemic. It would have given them just what they need to get by. But I knew from my background at Grid just how complicated it is to put 30 and 40 minute videos together mm -hmm. following. They would have gotten burnt out. I knew it. I was like, they're going to experience burnout, then they're going to stop. And this whole product is not going to be what they want because the user is going to get there. They don't want to put in a password on it. They want it delivered to them. They want to have a good experience. So now you're reflecting your brand as a gym owner as being not great. Your user experience went way down. So I decided to just try to create my own product. So I think people like to say it was a pivot, but it wasn't really a pivot for me. It was like, how can I help my customers out in the best way possible to at least use this time when they don't have money and neither do I to create great brand association. Like, mm -hmm. hey, Flex is here for you and we're gonna do whatever it takes to make sure that you guys stay alive. And I gotta be honest with you, the pouring out of support after we launched, that was three weeks. I sat down and I put out the first iteration of Studio in three weeks, which, became a platform for people to upload their class content, interact with their members and password protect it um, in the fanciest way I knew how. I mean, that's just always been my obsession is like make the UI so fun and enjoyable that people enjoy putting their stuff in. Very similar to the digital baseball cards, mm -hmm. right? It's like give something that people want to share and they'll share it more. So how's so, the growth of uh, studio gone? So last year it was, I mean, the momentum was crazy. We had thousands of people sign up in the first like two to three months. Um, and then I was at this interesting crossroads. I was getting talked to about investment, right? Like, Hey, now's the time. And that's a whole other conversation about how I feel about investment. But I, the, the TLDR is that I'm just not a huge fan of throwing money on something until I understand all of what it's going to be. 
So like right. I always said, don't give me the money to start the fire. Give me the money to pour on the flames. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what I had yet. I didn't know how long it was going to last. I didn't know what people were going to respond to. I also knew that there were companies directly in competition who were going to be raising a ton of money and a bunch of people coming out of the woodworks. I just, I guess at this point in my life, I had been around long enough to see the cycles, yeah. see the development and know what people are going to do. And I was like, and I kind of predicted a lot of it. I was like, here's what's going to happen. Everybody and their brother's going to start a fitness app, right? Some of them are going to be made by fitness brothers in New York. Some of them are going to be made by, you know, Joe Schmo in the middle of the country. Someone's going to be made by this trainer who doesn't really know what's going on, right? All of these apps are going to come out and they're all going to go away eventually because they're, they're not, that's not what they were meant to do. It's like when I have a gym owner now, as much as I love you guys, when you reach out to me, you say, Hey, will you build an app for my gym? Like, why don't I just go do it myself? And I'm like, I don't know. Why don't I just go start a gym by myself? Like, I'm a technologist. This is literally what I do for a living is creating mm-hmm. technology. It is not as simple as just starting something up. And I think that a lot of people see offshore developers. They see that 10K price. Oh, just 10K and I have my own app? No, just 10K and you have an app. <laughs> it's not necessarily going to be one that people want to use. It's kind of like you'd learn from the mistakes that Grid made by having all this money and not having a solid business plan. And so you... Uh, you know, you didn't take the money when you had the opportunity last year. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh. I, I, cause I didn't believe in it Yeah, because I don't know what I would have told somebody if it didn't work out, I would have said, you didn't give me enough time to think about it. And that's not a very good excuse. <laughs> right? right. So right. instead I definitely stressed myself out a little bit in the beginning, like trying to like, okay, let's get this product out. Let's get, and then eventually I was like, actually, I'm just going to sit back on this one. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to feel like I missed the wave and I use a lot of metaphors. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said about cresting that wave, letting everybody else ride that in of like the quick cash and the money grabs and the quick environment and just kind of sitting back in the water and be like, okay, the next wave is going to be twice as big. The first one is all the early adopters mm-hmm. and everybody imagined that like, oh, there's going to be this explosion. Everyone's going to want to be doing this. And I said, actually what I'm observing, like not what the markets are headlining, not what the news is saying, but what I'm actually seeing is that the people who are already good at producing digital fitness are exploding. And the people who aren't good at creating digital fitness are exactly where they were at the start. Like (laughs) there was nobody helping the creators actually create something more enjoyable and entertaining and valuable for their customers. It was the people who are already doing it well, which was a small percentage, but it feels big because it's the loud minority. Yeah. And I just sat back and I was like, I'm just going to keep talking to trainers. I probably talked to at least over a hundred trainers in the last eight to 10 months business owners, some just starting out, some doing it on the side, some just got their degree, some just have five clients, some have 150 clients and all of these different people. And I just take it all in. And I just try to figure out what the best type of product is. And now that we actually took the time to dump it all out of my head, you know, map it out on a roadmap of what this product's gonna look like, I've never been more excited about Studio than I am pretty much at this very moment. I just love how much you listen instead of making like the quick decisions that most people make. So it's the key to life. Yeah, I, it, it really is. I, if I could give myself any, like, just keep listening. It mm-hmm. really, like, it helps all of your relationships. It helps all of your business decisions. It's just like, there is something that, and it may not be exactly what you want to listen. I think that people silo themselves because they decide who they're going to listen to. And that's it. And that is, if you do anything in absolute, you start to lose. You just do. You're so pegged in one style that you can't even imagine what somebody else is thinking. So when someone turns to me and says, well, Peloton describes the market as 100 million people worldwide and they already have this percentage and this percent. And I'm like, cool. So I'm going to go after the other, I don't know, six and a half billion people that you didn't just mention 
and try to figure out why they're not doing fitness. <laughs> like, why are they not adopting this? That's only a hundred. Like this, it seems like a huge number and I get it, but I'm so intrigued on getting people to start fitness and introduce it to their lives. Cause it is so great for you in ways that you only understand if you do it. Right. It's right. like the people who sleep eight hours a night. They, they think they have a superpower and they do. Sleeping yeah. eight hours a night is actually life-changing. Mm-hmm. And now I understand that it goes sleep, eat, exercise, and that's it. Those make up 90% of the stresses in your life. All of the other things are in that last 10% that are caused by the reactions from the top three. <laughs> so now I've looked at a more holistic framework and a way to actually adopt and get more people into a fitness lifestyle. That's kind of what we're going for now. What is the quote of your tattoo that pertains to listening? What Ooh, which one? You have you have a tattoo I've heard on a previous podcast. It talks about listening versus um, it's something in regards that when I hear someone talking, I'm already thinking about what I'm gonna say. Oh, how you're gonna respond? Yeah, yeah. So um, what is it? listen to understand. Listen to understand. That's it. So the, it's the dichotomy of like stop listening to respond. Most mm-hmm. people are just hearing enough of what you say and starting to formulate what their response is going to be rather than actually letting you exhaust the information that's in your head. And sometimes the gold is in that last 5%. Mm-hmm. Like I used to listen to Gary Vee a lot. And ultimately what you recognize is that 85 to 90% of what he says is the same over and over and over again. And that's his own repetition style. I can go into what that means for the psych and why he's doing, why I think he's doing that. But at the end of the day, I would have him on all day because every once in a while he would drop a nugget that you just can't find anywhere else. He would mm-hmm. say something like, well, yeah, and that's when Coke turns to us and like, if you're going to use our 150K for that, and I'm like, oh, Coke's paying them 150K for this ad. And it's that type of small detail that changes the way you do your business. Because now I know that this brand is willing to pay this much for this type of advertising. Mm-hmm. And now I have an anchor to work off of. And the truth is, if you never listen to Gary Vee because you don't like his style, you've missed that. Yeah. And now I have one up on you. You know, Stu always talks about, he's like, I don't understand how somebody like you consumes as much as you do and also executes. And it's because I'm a passive executioner. I will execute all day and have this stuff going on in the background. And if I hear something, I'm able to identify very quickly. Like, ooh, wait a second. That's something I should go back and listen to. And I stop what I'm doing and I listen to it. Write down my mm-hmm. note and I go on. Yeah. And that's just how I've always been. I don't know how you do it. Uh, <laughs> I'll just sit here and listen to music. And sometimes I don't feel like I'm as focused as I could right. be. <laughs> right. so, it's, it's one of your superpowers. It must be from sleeping so much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm still working on the sleep thing. <laughs> I'm up to seven hours a night. Okay. Uh, my buddy's at nine and that's what I'm, that's my, my goal is to really, if I can operate on eight hours, I mean, that would be fantastic. I just got to create the time. That's it. There's so much I want to do. I get excited about it. <laughs> so what's next for Joe Dabali? How are you going to continue to get better? Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to be, oh, man, this sounds so cliche, right? I think this is going to be one of my best years. Mm -hmm. Um, 2020 was a learning year for a ton of people for a ton of different reasons. I'm not going to sit here and say my scenario was better or worse than anybody else's because we're all still dealing with it. And I try to remind people that all the time. While I don't necessarily want my content to constantly be about reminders of a time that we don't really want to reflect on. I also think that if you just try to completely ignore everything that happened in 2020, you're bound to let it happen again to you, which is Mm -hmm. understand how much we need people understand that isolation really does make us a little crazy understand that the relationships that we have in life do need some fostering and they do need some more attention and that we could do better at communication. But taking all that, I'm looking at 2021 as the year that I get to rebuild. And I've proven that I was able to withstand that hurricane. 
And even though it's still happening and it's still on its way out, and I do think that there'll be some more economic impact to come, I'm looking at this year as like, okay, here's my year to start from scratch. This is what I'm good at. This -hmm. is what I help brands do all the time. It's my favorite place to be. We got nothing. What do we do? We don't have a dollar. We we can't spend $30 a month just to have restreams so that we have a better, no, we don't have that. What are we going to do to make it right now with what we have? And so for me personally, I'm going to diversify a little bit this year. And like I've been talking about, 2020 was supposed to be the year that I produced a bunch of content. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out like that. I don't hold it against myself because I feel like I'm a year behind now. I was like, okay, 2021 will be the year then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely going to try to get into a little bit more teaching. Um, obviously, I have this kind of setup here because I'm hoping to be able to put out some more content from me um, to teach people about the stories that I shared with you today because I do think that they can help young entrepreneurs. Um, and people that aren't entrepreneurs yet that maybe aspire to be and help them out through that. So that's kind of on the personal side, on the business side, this is going to be the most fun. This is when you kind of, this is a, I don't want to say it's a huge dice roll because I've been thinking about it for eight months now, but we are heavily leaning into what studio is going to become. And the new studio will be out next month, um, with a completely new interface designed for a completely, a much more solid purpose, um, a much better user experience. And then I can even drop it here for the first time. I haven't talked about this yet, Um, but we're going to be producing an app, um, which is something that our customers have been asking for forever. Um, And it's going to be focused on their end consumer. So it's actually a way for people to look at fitness in a slightly different way. Um, It's called Mix um, with two X's because branding. Mm -hmm. Um, And right now I think there's already a, yeah, I've published a landing page a couple days ago um, at mix.co. So you can check it out over there and put in your email address. There's a, it's a super scantily written, like there's not much on there. Um, but it's something that's super shooting for the end of this year um, to have an app in the app store. Um, and that app should facilitate more people getting introduced to fitness and being able to sustain it in their lives. And I think that, you know, that's always been the company's mission. Let's see how many people's lives we can introduce fitness to in a sustainable way. So I feel like the products that we have now, or at least that will be out by the end of this year will be, the ones that do it the best. It's awesome. You are the one person that I've heard the most on other people's um, content that I would like to see produce more content. So, so okay. Please. Can I spin this on you then? Can what? I ask you, what yeah. is it? What do you want to know more about? Like what, what would you be interested in me talking about? You're just so smart when it comes to marketing and just, you know, I've listened to every single jamming with Joe probably two to three times. Like there's just so much knowledge to be found there and uh, you and Stu are just uh, hilarious when, when you do that segment. Um, But uh, I don't know. So is Um, it more focused on that kind of marketing knowledge? I'm happy to put out more content. I think so. I think so. And you know, I don't think that anybody could, you're worried about people judging you, but you can't judge someone that's spitting education out there. I don't think. I'm trying. Yeah. That would be the goal. And if you, if you get on Aaron Dodge's, uh, you know, dance videos, yeah, you're going to get judged. <laughs> right. But, but uh, no, putting out just, you know, what's in your brain out there for others. Oh, so valuable. So I have this concept then. I'll float it past you and tell me what yeah. you think. I wanted to take this exact setup that I'm doing right now mm-hmm. and live stream twice a week for one hour and call it office hours. And it's literally just me answering people's questions happy to take questions from literally anybody 
Um, if nothing's going on, me talking for an hour is usually not a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and even if that day, like I'm researching something new or just like wanting to talk about it, that's probably what I would start. And I feel like that's the lowest barrier because at least at this point, it doesn't have to be perpetual, right? It could be something that we just do and it exists for an hour and then it goes, right? It doesn't get recorded and then uploaded 16 different places. Because I think sometimes when you do that, people tend to wait. They're like, oh, I'll get to that at the end of the month. And I'm like, ah, maybe it's relevant now. <laughs> maybe it'd be cool if we can enjoy it now. I think that's perfect. Um, cool. Are you thinking more visually or like Clubhouse? Make it more. Um, I don't think I would leverage Clubhouse yet just for accessibility purposes. Mm -hmm. I just feel like right now I try to get the biggest audience possible. So that's probably going to be on like an Instagram live um, yep. or a YouTube live that I then publish somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm an audio first person. That's why I wanted to make sure the audio sounded good here because I do think that most people like to listen to long form content passively. And right don't have the time to be fully absorbed in the visual. So while I do think there will be a visual component to it, I don't think it'll be the primary focus. I think it'll just be like an additive to the audio. Well, Joe, thanks for hopping on today, man. Yeah, uh, this has been so much fun. Your, this is your, great. Time, your time is valuable and I uh, appreciate you giving me a little bit of it. Um, yeah. I've never heard a lot of your story and it's just awesome how important listening, uh, you know, can change your life and really help you learn how to interact and help others. So the information's out there is very rarely original thoughts. Yeah. So yeah. it's nice to just kind of see the patterns and take life as it comes at you. So if people want to check you out, how can they check you out? So let's get your social media handles. So, uh, social media, I'm Joe Tabaldi everywhere. Okay. Um, so that's usually pretty easy. And then outside of that flex underscore co with two X's, okay. um, and go check out mix.co. I'd love okay. to, I mean, this is a cool announcement and maybe since I'm announcing it for the first time here, when we actually launch the app, we could do this again and we okay. can talk more about it. Maybe so, that'll be a good little catch up. It's the second announcement I've got on a podcast. Uh, Stu introduced his shooting the shit. It was the oh, first cool. time he'd mentioned it whenever uh, we uh, talked a couple of weeks back. So it's that cool. Super cool. Yeah. Well, once again, Joe, appreciate you hopping on and listeners will be getting in touch with you next week. Thanks so much for having me.